Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, it's a pleasure to have in the beach shack, Josh Holmes, who had a magnificent rugby career. He played for the Ringa Rats, went on to play for the Waratahs, also the Brumbies uh, and the Western Force, and even, I think it was the Melbourne Rebels. So he's had a fantastic rugby career, but he tells about the story of growing up on the Northern Beaches, then also his rugby career and the highs and the lows. So let's sit back and listen to my chat with Josh. And this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. It's a, a mate of, a, of Matty Hasey who works with us at the Lifeguards and he has had a, a really good career in rugby. So it'd be a good story. Josh Holmes, how are you, mate? Not too bad, how are you? Yeah, good, mate. So I thought I'd start with you. You grew up on the Northern Beaches. Yep, grew up on the Northern Beaches. Uh, lived at Newport my whole life. Surfed and um, played rugby on the beaches. So it was a pretty good lifestyle. So you pretty much, uh, did you do any other sport when you were growing up apart from rugby and surfing? Uh, not really. Like you did, you, we, did, we played our, in our touch competitions and stuff in, um, in summer. And um, mum and dad entered me in a little bit of little athletics, which I hated. They had it in Harrowby, which didn't last too long. But apart from that, and then obviously um, I used to do nippers out of um, Bogola Surf Club on a Sunday as well. So how did rugby come about? Did you, you know, enjoy playing rugby as a kid? So rugby is sort of just, it's through our family. Um, my dad played over 200 games for Ringa. Uh, when he grew up, so mum and dad had the, had our first um, our first my, my brother Luke Holmes. He 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 obviously fell into rugby, and then I just fell into rugby as well. And um, uh, growing up, really loved it, and um, wasn't that good at it when I was young. And um, I was pretty small, and then um, had a bit of a growth spurt, and things just changed, and it took off pretty fast. So, did you? Have you always played? I think you played halfback. Uh, no, no. So I I, I played centre. And then um, I used to get smashed and um, every weekend I was just getting absolutely bashed and I'd go and watch my brother play and he was a hooker and um, he was doing really well and I was I was going through a bit of a stage where I was just like, rugby's not that fun. And then dad suggested, why don't you move to halfback? And then I moved to halfback and then as soon as I moved to halfback, I had a growth spurt and got bigger and put on weight and got taller. But um, I just really enjoyed it and, um, and then stayed there. Well, then you did play for Ringa Rats. Now, I've, I grew up with the, the Ramick Wicks, mate, so uh, that was always a, a good competition against Ringa. But, uh, mate, when did you start playing for Ringa? So I came out of school in um, 2000 and finished my last year of year 12 in um, 2005. But before that, I played all my, like, my juniors for Rats um, from about under 10s. Um, obviously, you play for Newport, which is your village team, and then you used to get picked in your sort of state cup team playing um, play on the June long weekend for Ringa. So I played all my juniors um, then, and then obviously in 2006, I moved to grade, playing first grade at an 18-year-old. 
And what was that experience like, running out for first time, first grade? Must have been uh, pretty stoked, especially when your family had all come through playing with Baringa. Uh, to be honest, I was shitting myself a little bit. Um, it's a <laughs> it's a pretty big. Uh, it was pretty pretty daunting. You know, you go from beating year twelve playing against guys your own age, and then you go to playing first grade. And I think that the, the first grade debut that day, uh, we played the Canberra Vikings. So I was playing against uh, Matt Henjack, who was a current Wallaby. So um, I was at Rat Park, and um, it was just everything was so fast and. He was just into me calling me a little shit and stuff and saying you shouldn't be out here and as as you do with young guys coming through yeah, yeah. so <clears throat> it was it was a learning curve but it was also it was fun but it was, it was pretty um it was pretty fast paced and it was pretty scary so from there you obviously must have played well because it wasn't long after that that you you got contracted to the waratahs i was actually pretty lucky i was uh, i was in year 12 and um just played australian schoolboys and um I was doing my, I was studying for my HSC and um, I was just sort of sitting downstairs and um, I got a phone call from the TARS and I'd been doing a little bit of academy stuff with them while I was in year 12, just it was more of a process with all the um, all the guys who made Australian schoolboys, the Waratahs would bring them in and um, Ewan McKenzie was on the phone and dad came down and said, hey mate, you better stop studying. Ewan's on the phone and I said, who? And he said, the Waratahs coach. So I went upstairs and um, he pretty much said to me, mate, um, we're going to offer you a full contract starting in you know, three weeks, you've got till the weekend to decide. I got off the phone and dad sort of asked me what happened. And I said, oh, I've got a contract. I don't need to study anymore. See you later. So um, <laughs> I was pretty lucky coming straight out of school to be offered a full-time contract. And um, so pretty much from there, that was October. I um, I finished my HSC and then the 1st of November, I had to cancel all my schoolies plans and I'm trying to um, my first full pre-season with TARS. And how was that stepping up into that level? The preseason must have been pretty intense. Well, that was really intense because um, obviously 2000 and um, the Wallabies um, obviously had just gone on to uh, make the World Cup final, and um, you had had all these guys coming back to the um, to the Waratahs like your Matt Gidow. I'm not Matt Gidow. I mean, like your Nathan Gray's, your your Phil Wards, your Dan Vickerman's, your, your David Lyons. Um, Matt Dunning, uh, Matt Rogers, Lottie Takiri, some of these guys just, you know, I'd been watching them on TV and then suddenly I was training with them. So like going from from that and then standing and sitting in the same room and planning and, and learning how to play with them was just crazy. Like I was, I was, it was, I was shitting myself. I remember that, that, that year when we went on the, we went on a boat party on, um, at the end of December and um, I took my visor off and um, all these players started introducing themselves to me. And I said, oh, it's Josh. And they said, oh, mate, we don't recognize you without your visor on because you're always sitting in the corner with your visor on, just sitting there and, and no one no one knows who you are. So, like, it was just, I just sort of, I kept kept in my shell and I sort of, um, I was pretty quiet, but it was very intimidating. Like, these guys obviously had an aura about themselves. And when you train with them, you definitely see why they're the best. Like, it was it was very fast-paced. And, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty tough. It took me a while to get used to. Mate, was Chris Whitaker there at that stage? Because I grew up with him. He's a little bit younger than me, but he was at um, came through Bronte there, where I grew up. Yeah, so he was the Waratahs captain that first year when I came in. So yeah, for my first couple of years, I spent with um, learning under Wits. Yeah, mate. Uh, then you, you came down with an illness not long after starting with the Waratahs. Yeah, so in uh, after my first preseason in January that year, um, I came down with encephalitis. It was just it was just randomly one night had a headache and then 
was supposed to play a New South Wales A game against Tonga and I was starting and um, things sort of just went downhill from there. And then that Saturday when I was supposed to play, um, I ended up in intensive care and spent the next five weeks in intensive care. So for the listeners, you know, and I don't know much about this sort of um, disease or virus or what, whatever it is. So what does, do you know what causes it? So it's, it's swelling of the brain. When, when, when I spoke to the doctors, they sort of say to you, everyone has the disease sort of in them, it lingers, but something needs to trigger it to like, to make it affect. And they don't really know what, it, what sort of, um, what brought it on. So I just, um, they're looking for mosquito bites and stuff. Like I'd been on a, um, I'd been away the week before to Central Coast for a rugby camp and we sort of stayed in the bush. So like, we're looking for like, if I had a, um, like a mosquito bite somewhere, like everyone went into lockdown at the Taj, you weren't allowed to share water bottles for a while because I worried that it was, you know, it was maybe um, carried from the mouth or someone else maybe had it, but it wasn't, wasn't affecting them. And, um, and, and obviously I got it and um, yeah, and when it hit, it hit, hit pretty fast. Um, it just started off like a, a bad headache and the headache got worse and worse. And then by Saturday morning, um, you know, I, I, my legs stopped working and I couldn't see. And that's when I um, knew I had a problem. So I went straight to hospital and then straight into intensive care and then sort of um, fell into a little coma for about four days. And then I woke up and the doctors sort of said, it's a bit, it's a bit funny how I can remember this, but I remember laying in the bed and um, everything in my mind was working fine. But then when I tried to actually do, do different motor skills, they didn't work very well. So I remember the doctor saying to my parents, um, you know, Josh has got about two to three weeks to get back to 100%. If he doesn't get back to 100%, then that's the way he'll stay for the rest of his life. So, for example, I couldn't walk, um, I couldn't talk properly, couldn't move my arm, one of my arms right. So he just sort of said it's going to be a process, and I was on these quite strong steroids to sort of help me get along. And um, every day was a process. So, like for me in my head, I was I was myself, and I knew what was going on. So I was just like, you know, I want to get out of bed, but my legs wouldn't work. So it was really frustrating and it was pretty scary. In the end, they, they pretty much reckon the reason why I got back to 100% health was because I was so fit from that preseason from rugby that my body, well, my body was fighting it. So it was, it must have been a strange feeling just lying there, but your brain telling you I can do all this stuff, but then you actually physically couldn't do it. Yeah, it was, it was really weird. Like you know, like my mates were coming in to see me and they're having a conversation with me, and I was, I thought I was talking back to them normally, and I was just talking gibberish. And you could see on their faces, they were just like, what's going on? And, um, and then they'd leave and I was like sitting there like, going, what the heck? Like, why don't you understand me? But it was weird. Like, as I said, I couldn't, I couldn't walk. But then one day it was just, I, I woke up and I was like, I need to go to the toilet. And like, obviously you just normally just get out of bed and you do it. And um, I got out of bed and I was a bit stiff and stuff, but I just, I just walked. And then suddenly that brain had just, that part of the brain had um, fixed itself. And I could walk again and the doctors came like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I just need to go to the toilet, leave me alone. And, um, and I was, I was like, oh, my legs are working again. How good. And then as the process went on, like, you know, I could start to talk again and then everything sort of came back. And from there, it was just a process of, um, just getting moving again and like getting, getting fit. Like when I came home from the hospital, the doctors would say like, you know, each day go for a walk. And the first day I was like, I'll go for a walk around the block. And I got a hundred meters down the road and had to call my mum and tell her to pick me up because I felt like I just played like played like four games of footy. I'd come home and sleep for eight hours. So every day was just sort of building myself up. And then as time went on, you know, being young, you seem to recover quicker from things. And um, it was just a build up of things and, and, and just had to keep myself going. And then 
it all eventuated and I got better, which was lucky. So, mate, that, that must have been quite frustrating at the time because you've had a great pre-season and, and probably lucky in hindsight that you were that fit that you could beat the virus. How many – was it a week or two weeks that you, you could get up and go to the toilet and started coming good? Well, it was about 10 days until my legs started working properly. So that was, yeah, that was quite frustrating. And then obviously once the legs got better, everything else just sort of followed. Yeah, but it, I, I definitely was lucky that I was just sort of that fit and put myself, was in that situation where rugby sort of, I guess, saved my life. So at that point when you're doing the 100 metres, you know, walking down the street, you're exhausted, you had to get picked up by your mum and then you had to slip. Was there a, a thought there that, geez, I might never play rugby again? Uh, to be honest, no, I was just in my head, I was like, I'm playing rugby again. I was, I was picked in the um, Australian 19s to go across to the World Cup um, that year. And um, I remember um, growing up from like 16s, um, Scotty Wiseman, who was the, who's just um, stood, stood down as the current Wallabies um, assistant coach, he was sort of like, I just fell into a camp with him and um, me and him became friends. And then um, I just ended up being at all these camps that he was at. And um, he became he became sort of like a, a personal coach and I used to catch up with him and do lots of different skill work with him and um, do extra sessions and stuff. And um, he was the Australian 19s coach and he came and saw me in hospital and said, mate, you know, we're, we're heading off to a plane in two weeks to South Africa. I don't think you're going to be right, mate, <clears throat> for the under-19s World Cup. And I kept telling him, no, nah, no, nah, I'll be right, mate. Just give me two weeks. You know, I'll get out of here and I'll be sweet. I'll get myself back ready. And um, <clears throat> I think got them, them leaving and going over then, I was still in hospital and I was seeing some of the games. I just felt like I missed out on something that I'd dreamt about. And so when I got out of hospital, I just had this this mindset of like, I'm, I'm going to get back and play footy. I don't care. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to not never play again. So my, my mind was just telling me, I'm going to play footy and that's it. <clears throat> Do you think in hindsight, by getting sick like that, gave you more motivation, but, but in your head, so much more to go, like to put in, a hundred percent. Whereas if that didn't happen, might've been a bit different. I think you definitely see like, you know, only being 18 years old, you definitely do see things a different way. And you definitely see like what kind of opportunity as, as at hand and how lucky you are. And I was really like, wow, like I'm, you know, I'm in a really good position. <clears throat> so I definitely, yeah, I definitely saw it a different way and then had a different mindset to obviously go forward you know, had, had a mindset around let's well, let's let's really sacrifice a few things to get to get to where I want to go. Yeah, because I, I just wanted to see how you thought about that because I've seen so many kids come through. You know, in whatever sport they're doing, they've got so much talent, but they just didn't have the dedication to get to that next level, and just you see them just fall away or go off the rails and and things like that. But you had that opportunity to see, geez, I could have lost all this, but. I didn't want to lose it, so I'm going to work that hard to get it back. Yeah, exactly. I think so. Like once I got better, I came back. I played for um, Rats, and I got my opportunity in first grade. And I saw that probably that year I, did, I wasn't, I didn't play very well. And um, and then the Tars obviously um, I had a one year deal, and, and you and Mackenzie sort of saw something there and believed in me and offered me another one year deal. So I sort of said to myself, I really need to, um, I nearly need to get my shit together and um, and and take this opportunity. So. From about um, August that year, I decided to, um, as being an 18-year-old, I decided to give up the drink 
and um, I got off alcohol for a whole year and I said I'm going to give myself a full year to see where I can get myself to and um, I sort of was really lucky and then like you know I fast forward a year later I'd, I'd been to the under-19s World Cup we won the we won the World Cup in Dubai I just got nominated for the best player in the world for under-19s um, came back got picked in the Australian Sevens went over to Hong Kong played Australian Sevens came back got picked um, in the Wallaby squad and then played five Australia A games so in the um, in that year that gone past by making one big sacrifice it, uh, it definitely made a difference and then I was you know I'd achieved things that I just didn't even think I would achieve and then at the end of the year to cap it off I flew over to Scotland for, for two days which was crazy like you just fly to Scotland all that way for two days go to an award ceremony I was hanging out with Dan Carter and Richie McCaw and John Eels and you know, having beers with them and stuff and being invited back to Dan Carter's room to have a party and then got um, got awarded the best player in the world as under-19s, was just, um, which is hectic. It was just like a whole turnaround. Yeah, mate, must have been an absolute brilliant achievement and, and, and you know, especially meeting those players which you, you know, grew up watching your entire life. Yeah. Well, Dan Carter was just like, you know, Dan Carter's the man and everyone watches him and just sees the things he does. And then Richie McCaw has his own sort of presence. And then, you know, at my table that I was sitting with, I had John Eels and Chris Latham was nominated for the best player in the world. So I was sitting next to Chris Latham and having a chat away. And, you know, he was just talking to me around like I was just another footy player with him and his team. So it was, it was just a really good experience and um, to be involved in something like that and just um, – and then, you know, cap it off with – to be lucky enough to um, be, be awarded that, uh, that award. Well, it's great for – people listening, you know, young young people coming through that are listening to this podcast, that to be successful, you need to make those sacrifices along the way to get the uh, the outcomes. And that's you need to be willing to do that, don't you? Especially when you get to the elite level of sport. Yeah, I definitely think you, you do got, you have to definitely um, sort of take a back seat and sort of see where you're sitting and you have to make some sacrifices. Obviously, when you're young, everyone's you know all your mates and stuff want to go out and do different things and 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 it hurts to not be involved in that but to um get ahead sometimes you have to make those sacrifices it took me a while to sort of understand that but um and it's, and it's hard because you know you live on the beach and so you live in a pretty good part of the world where there's a lot going on always and there's a lot of distractions so it's yeah it's, it's just obviously making those decisions and then really giving things a crack well, mate, then you went, uh, you know, into the Waratahs. You know, you're playing with, uh, you know, legends that the Wallabies, as you said, came back. What was that experience like? Now you, you, you're back playing rugby, and and who was the main person that actually helped you get back to rugby? Scotty Wisemanel. Scotty Wisemanel was the guy who just put like we just did so many extra sessions to like to get all my motor skills back in back in um, back in tune. My the biggest thing from my end was just obviously. Once I came back, I sort of lost my um, my zippiness around my passing and everything around my game. And me and Scotty just used to do so many extra sessions on the side. You know, we'd go and do a two-hour session with the Tars and then we'd finish. He'd be like, come on, Holmesy, let's go and pass. Let's just go and get that zippiness back. It'll pay off, trust me. And um, he was the guy sort of in my ear going, come on, let's, I'll, I'll come and do it with you. And while everybody else was recovering, we'd, we'd be doing those extra sessions. So he, he was the guy who um, who put a lot of time into me and helped me get, to that, uh, get back to that stage. And then... That that year when I made my Waratahs debut, he, he'd actually become the um, the attack coach. Right. 
And then you went on there and played a couple of years for the Waratahs, and then you moved on though to did you go? Was it the Brumbies you went to from there? Yes, I had um, I had two years in the um, in the Tars, and then um, I uh, had I went down to Brumbies and had two years down in the national um, capital, and then and then I came back to the Tars after that. And what was the experience like at the Brumbies? Because it was George Gregan around then at that stage, because he was playing for the Brumbies back in those days. So it was a bit of a, like a it was a it was a bit of a hard takeover because the year that I went down there, the, um, George Gregan and Stephen Larkham had just retired the year before. So it was like, you know, who's going to come in and um, be the new George Gregan and Stephen Larkham? And um, myself and um, Christian Leofano, we'd gone through our schoolboys footy and we played Australian 19s together. So we'd been branded this sort of, this, this 9 and 10 who, who, who are performing a good combination. You know, these guys could be the next George and Stephen to lead the Brumbies for the next however long time. But obviously, you know, stepping into those guys' shoes is, is no easy feat and those guys were legends so it, it was a learning curve you know i was 20 i was only just turned 21 when i went down there and um it was it was it was it was, it was hard it was hard stepping in obviously um i'd only played three super rugby games before i got down there so it was it was, it was there was a good opportunity there and um obviously unfortunately it didn't it didn't fall into exactly the way i would have hoped but it was definitely a good learning curve did you find the pressure affected you mentally though as well because there's so much pressure on you to you know to, to come in at trying to be a, a George Gregan yeah definitely I think um the Brumbies have played a, such a style for so long that um there is pressures to like sort of come in and, and and um be the same of what he does and I was no way the same sort of player as him so trying to change my game it, it, it didn't really compliment me and when I look back now I wish I just played the way I play um, and not worried about it. And, and, and you know, you, you definitely go home and Mondays suck. Like Mondays was like, it's like you're going for a job review every week. Like, you know, it's like your six month annual review where you come in to see the boss and he sits you down and talks about your job and what you've been doing in your sale, like whatever you're doing as, as a, a, in your job. But you go in every Monday and you do your, um, your review and then we do like a, a defense review and it just sucks because the anxiety you get around those days was just terrible. Do you think the coach has a lot to do with it where, you, as you said, to play your natural game? I find over all the years that, that I've seen coaches in, in various sports, they can see the talent in a, in a person, but they know how to get the best out of them rather than a coach trying to duplicate what their previous player was, you know, like a, a how they play. Yeah, I... I, I... You could say that it's it's up to the coach, but I also think it's up to the player. Like, it's pretty funny. I, I was at a, a coaching course last week with um, Matt O'Connor, who um who was my my coach that first year as a backs coach. And um, party was uh Matt O'Connor was 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 an unbelievable coach. And um, I think he sort of hit the nail on the head when I was with him last week because I was presenting and talking around halfbacks and and how I coached them and stuff like that. And he sort of said to me. You know, Josh came in and he went through this being this Australian 19s player and being at school and being a dominant player where I sort of relied on myself to create things for everyone else. Where I was coming into a team now where I don't need to worry about doing too much and I needed to be more of to figure out how can I make these good players even look better. And that was probably my problem at the start. I just didn't know how to make these guys look better. I was always, I was more of a player at the start of my career where um, 
I was just natural ability and I do, I do things on my own. I had the ability to beat defenders and score tries and stuff like that. So I probably didn't realize how to bring in my own actual game and, and make other players look better. So he, he sort of hit on the nail on the head the other day when I was just sitting there and, um, and he sort of talked around my experience at the Brumbies and I was like, wow, I never really thought about that, but you're exactly right. And have you gone on now to do a lot more in the coaching? Do you enjoy that side of it? Yeah, so I, I, I love coaching now. I, I run the um, – I'm the head of um, – Myself and Boy Killingworth, um, we're the head um, head coaches of the Ringer Colts program. So we run the whole Colts program down there, and and um, it's definitely changed the way I see things. Like obviously, as a player, you're quite, without even knowing, you're quite selfish, and you sort of worry about yourself. So when you wake up that week, you sort of look at your own your own schedule and go, "Well, I've got to be here. I need to do this." Whereas a coach, you don't look at one individual; you look at it as a whole program. And how can I cater to every single player? How can I get you know, one guy's good at this, but one guy's not. How do I, how do I build my whole program around upskilling everyone, but also making sure guys are engaged, all that kind of stuff. So it's definitely, um, it's been a learning curve, but I really enjoy it. I really, I really enjoy the coaching side of things. Because now you're on the coaching side, you'd see that it needs to be a team needs to play as a team to win. Not an individual is not going to, no matter how talented they are, is going to. Yeah, you know, go on and win a game unless the team is on the same page. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're really big on guys expressing themselves and bringing their own games to like to our game plan, and then obviously um, buying into what we're trying to um, we're trying to do as a team. So as you said, there's a game plan. Let's stick to it. But then all the guys are good players because they've got their own skill and expertise. So you know we're, we're big on guys bringing that to the game. And after you, you finished with Super Rugby, you still were playing with Raringa. Was it your last season that you won the comp? No, I finished in 2020 and we won, we won the comp in 2017. And what was that like winning the – was that the first comp you'd won with Raringa? That's the first comp Raringa's ever won in the history. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just used to Ramwick, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So that must have been a, 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 an amazing time to, for, not only just for the club, but for yourself. You've come through all the grades and then finally you've, uh, you know, you've won the premiership. Well, for so long, you, you play first grade and um, like obviously playing first grade on the weekend's awesome. Like running on the Rat Park on a Sunday, I'm in a Saturday afternoon at three o'clock and you see the hillbilly fans up there drinking, drinking beers and, and sledging every person who's not a rat. It's awesome. But um. For so long, I guess I played rats and I just never thought it'd be possible to win the comp because we were just never there. Like we'd always maybe sneak into the top six and then get knocked out by uni or old bloody Randwick. And then, um, <laughs> and it just seemed so far away. And then we just had this squad that was building. And then in 2017, the rats decided to get DC as our head coach. And um, we had such a good, skillful squad. We just needed someone to know how to like, to win the hard games. Like, you know, there was games where we'd be down 36-0 and then we'd come back and beat them 38-36 in uh, 2016. Teams were like, don't take the, um, the pedal off Ringo because they're just so skillful. But if you, if you keep the structure and stuff, so we, we struggled to play against your unis and stuff because we had no, we didn't know how to like, we didn't know how to win close games. And then DC came along and he just, he just taught us and brought this like structure and stuff. And then that 2017 was just, we had the everything 
in the makings of this squad. And then obviously um, we had a couple. We had that, we had that tragedy that year where Wardy, our number eight, his brother, passed away on the field, and um, we we're already pretty determined. And then seeing Wardy, who's a close mate of mine, go through what he had to go through, and then say, "I'm going to come back, and we're going to win this." It's pretty. Um, it's pretty amazing. So the boys just, we were just. Um, we had a B and have on it and we just wanted to smash everyone. I think the best thing we did that year was that first quarter final at Rat Park when Randwick came down, we put 55 on them and knocked them out and they had a pretty star-sided team. I think we sent a message to everyone that shit, the rats are coming and it was awesome. Like that week after, you know, you, you come into Rat Park and we're playing Manly at home and there's a, there's a, there's a, um, there's a tunnel for us to run onto the field that goes across the field and then goes down to the goalpost. And then so you, you really come out come out of the tunnel and you're at the goalpost then you jog back in. Like the whole hill was just packed. There was, you know, there's over 10,000 people there. They're just riding the whole the whole moment with you. And then you win that and it's like, it was weird. Like you win that and normally you, you beat Manly, like that kind of game. It's like, let's go nuts, let's go party. You know, we've beaten Manly, they're out. It was just like this this feeling amongst the group, we're not done yet, we've got one more game to go and everyone was just really calm and we knew we had Norse uh, at Norse the week after and it was just, yeah, it was awesome. Like the best thing that day was was when we we're running out of the grand final in 2017, the Norse change rooms were, were like, were, 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 um, were broken, they're getting re- renovated. And um, so one of our assistant coaches, Dan Brown, he was coaching at the school across the road. So he's like, everyone come over to the school, we'll get out of the way of everyone. And um, we'll just, we'll get prepared there. So we were getting all changed. And then there's a field at the top of um, North Sydney Oval, which is your outside field, which they said, you guys are going to use this change room to get ready. And then you'll, you'll warm up on the front, um, the top field and then walk on the main field. So then we all got changed and we were crossing the road. We look into the stadium and, and they're pretty much closing the gates and saying no one else can get in. It's sold out. And we're like, what do you mean it's sold out? And like, you could hear the crowd. And then we're coming down. You know, we get the knock on the door and say, boys, you're on. And we're walking down as a group. As we get closer to the stadium, all you can hear is just the crowd going nuts. And there's, there's I reckon there's 18,000 rat supporters there to the 2,000 Norse. And you come around the corner and there's this 80 metre tunnel, which just was just was unbelievable. Like it gives me goosebumps thinking about it right now. And then to, to, to run on to that sort of experience and then obviously to do it with my brother uh, was, was pretty surreal. Mate, it would have been um, one never to forget, eh? That, that's especially your brother as well, and because he he was quite a good player too. He played a little bit of um, Super Rugby as well. Yeah, he played a lot of Super Rugby for um, a few different teams as well. You know, he uh, was pretty successful, and then he went on to be a. a um, he's the most capped um, first grade player at Rats ever now. Well, mate, uh, there's, there's one other thing that I, I found, and, and I want you to tell me a bit about it, and that's your your old budgie smugglers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had these these kangaroo cozies when I was I got given to me when I was like 18 I played Australian schoolboys in them and um, I seemed to like I seemed to go well and then a person of habit and I just once something works I just stick to it so I'd end up wearing I end up um, wearing those cozies in every single game for the rest of my career they're still in my cupboard but um, they just they were they were pretty bad like by the end of my career they, they were they were pretty ripped they had holes where where there shouldn't be holes i took them down to the um to the the person to fix them at warrior square a few times and he's like what what are these and i was like mate just fix the drawstring right because i need to wear them on the weekend 
So they had a lot of repairs, but every time in the change in the boys were just, they just thought they were horrendous. <laughs> they, yeah, they, they were my secret weapon, I reckon. And, um, and they, were the, they were the things I used to wear. Uh, so I got, I got into some crazy like rituals. Like um, I started making, um, I started wearing red undies to the, every, every game on, on a Saturday. So then my wife went and got myself made, you know, these undies with Josh's special undies on them. And um, so then she got me about four pairs. She said, these four pairs should last the rest of your career. And, and I, you know, I still, I, I got my last pair in my, um, in the cupboard because the other ones are all ripped and shredded. But um, I just got myself in these weird rituals, you know, I used to, on a Saturday, had to go and buy um, a coffee and then sourdough toast and come home and have, <laughs> have a coffee and sourdough toast with my wife before I go and play. Like, it was just, it was all these things in my head I got to tick off. Like, on a sat on a Friday night, I had to clean my boots and give them a wash with my with my toothbrush and then and then put them out next to my bed so they're nice and clean so when I come in the morning I see my my stuff there I, was, I just had all these stupid rituals that I followed but it was just it was the way that I prepared myself to play footy oh mate it must have worked you had a pretty good career so it's probably good you stuck with those rituals <laughs> yeah I, I think I know my wife along the way a little bit with all my stupid rituals <laughs> ticking them off on a, on a Friday night <laughs> Mate, also, rugby these days, it's fallen away a bit, it, it, like for your, your, your general punter, unless you're really into rugby. But I remember back in the day, probably before Super uh, Rugby came along, the Australian players, you know, the Wallabies, would come back and play for their clubs. And when Super Rugby came, it sort of went away from that. Do you think that was a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing because I think, like, as a player... Like the only way you're going to get better is you've got to play footy. Like you can't sit on the sideline and just wait for your opportunity. And then, and then once you get your opportunity, you're underdone. That's why probably New Zealand's so successful because they go, they go back and play ITM. And like you watch the ITM, it's bloody unbelievable rugby. I think DC sort of had a good mindset last year. If you're not playing Taj, you go back and play for your club footy. And um, you saw the club footy competition become a lot stronger. You know, I think uh, Queensland does it well as well. Yeah, like footy players just need to play footy. Like the only way you're going to get better is like playing footy. If you're not, if you're not. If you're not in form or if you're not being consistent, you like you need to get on the field. I think um, you know I only had ever once one dealing when I was 19 um, when Eddie Jones came to a camp, but um, he has an aura about himself and like everyone just sits down and pays attention. And um, I think uh, I think he'll be really good for Australian rugby where he'll just um, you know I know everyone thinks that Australia's in the last couple of years have had their opportunities and we're up and down with consistency, but Unfortunately, we've just we've gone through an era where we had we had some good players and then they moved on and then maybe guys got given opportunities at a young stage and weren't ready. But I, I reckon he'll build it back up and he'll 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 get everyone ready to go again. Um, he'll create that belief, like you know, look what he did with England. And I remember watching him as a player at Ramwick, you know, when he played down there, and and that era was like I remember Chris Whitaker would come back when he was um, in the Wallabies on the bench and, and George Gregan was the halfback. George Gregan came to Ramwick for a couple of seasons and Chris had to come back as the as the backup halfback of the Wallabies and play had to go and play second grade for Ramwick. Yeah, I, remember, I couldn't even get in the first grade side. I was actually ball-boying for um, Ringer back then. That was all the times that um, in the 90s when um, the Rats would make the grand final and bloody lose to Ramwick with Jimmy Williams and stuff playing. Um, I remember that. That was yeah. I, I think that's that's exactly what you got to do. Like I think you know, creating that mindset. Like just because you're a professional footy player doesn't mean you're a protected species. You got to um, you know, you should be out there and playing footy and and giving it a crack. You can't be can't be sitting on the sidelines. 
And I thought that was good from, from Chris because any other player, I reckon in this era, if you had to go back and play second grade here on the Wallabies team, I reckon they'd pack up and leave and go to another club where they could play, uh, you know, be dominant and play the first grade. I think, unfortunately, those days where you're sort of loyal and you say, like, well, you know, if you go into another club, like it happened to me, like I had to go to Eastwood for a couple of years because me and Sheena were both contracted um, to the Tars, but we both, you know, rats juniors and um, Sheena was better than me at that stage and um, and so it was going back to rats, I was playing second grade and I was a full contract player and um, you and Mackenzie sort of said to me, mate, can't, you're, like, you're not getting any benefits or pushing your selection if you're playing second grade. So you find out a solution. So I was, you know, Eastwood knocked on my door and said, mate, we'll take her with Chris Hickey. So you had to go there. So um, as much as I hated to leave, like there is an understanding, right? Like, you know, first grade is better than second grade in, in standard. So the only way you're going to get better is by playing, but you know, that loyalty, like Chris Whitaker's is a diehard Wix man. You know, I see his brother floating around Ben Whitaker when he comes and watches the Colts program. He's obviously involved in all the junior systems and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's great to have that loyalty. It, it's becoming less and less in rugby these days. <laughs> oh, mate, it's the same in rugby league. Don't worry. <laughs> they're, uh, they're probably worse than rugby. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> mate, uh, now, I want to touch on, we, we did speak about your mate, Matt Hasty, and, and I know him because he now works with it as a lifeguard. Now, if you remember back, he took me down to the Newport Arms and we got on the drink. I met you, I think that was the first time I met you down there. And he got me that drunk. And and I think we ended up back at your place to finish up. You know, I couldn't find my way home that night to get home. <laughs> yes, I remember that night. That's 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 a standard uh, weekend for, for, for Big Matt Hasty. <laughs> I think we came back and we started drinking um, Japanese gin. That's why it was so bad. I remember the next day I had to go and do a suit fitting. And um, I've never been so sick in my life. I felt like I was 18 with my first ever hangover again. I was just like, and then Hasty was telling me that, uh, he goes, I don't think Hoppo got home last night. <laughs> no, I was found in some, some bloke's front yard. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't make it the whole way. But gee, I reckon that's the drunkest I've been since I was about 18. It was absolutely horrific. But mate, we're moving down your way. I think I'm going to be about four or five doors up from you soon. We move, uh, we move tomorrow. So I'll probably be able to catch up with you there a bit a bit more down there at the uh, the arms yeah nice no, just just don't tell hasty every time you're going <laughs> no we'll just keep him away mate <laughs> <laughs> well mate it's uh it's great hearing your uh your story with the uh the rugby it's been an amazing career and at the end of the uh interview i do a segment called five fun facts so i'm going to throw some questions at you so you can answer them however you want yeah uh the first one favorite takeaway food Favourite takeaway food? Probably uh, Subway. Uh, favourite childhood memory? My favourite childhood memory is growing up, we all we all used to, um, there was no phones back then when we were young and so we didn't have to worry about getting on the, um, we all just used to meet on our bikes and um, we'd all we'd all meet uh, in Bardo Road and then head down and check the surf and um, I remember we called ourselves, our, our group when we were growing up, all the young blokes, we called ourselves the B24s and we got ourselves rings made. And we called ourselves the B24s because we used to burn everyone 24-7 because we were just, we were just <laughs> ruthless with how we used to give, put shit on all the boys. So um, we made ourselves a little group and we called ourselves the B24s and we bought our bikes and then they'd be like, here comes, here comes these pain in the ass. And so that was, that was a good childhood memory, you know, for a long time cruising <laughs> around, surfing and, um, and, and then putting shit on people. 
<laughs> Mate, cats or dogs and why? Um, I'm a dog man. I've got two dogs myself. I've just always, we've always been a dog dog family growing up. Never had a cat, so it's not like I don't like cats, just never really experienced them. And then I just had dogs in my life the whole time. And I've got two now, Batman and Kiwi. Mate, what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? Oh, that'd be uh, Daryl Braithwaite, Horses. Yeah, I like that one too. That's uh, that's a classic. Uh, if you're a DJ, what would your DJ name be? Oh, I'd be DJ Home Dog. Everyone calls me Home Dog. And as growing up, I used to call myself Home Dog. I, I was actually, when um, when we first left school, I called myself um, the Homesinator. And then um, Hasty, he Hasty caught on to that one. So he changed it and called himself the Hastinator. So he couldn't be walking around two good mates going, oh, the Homesinator and Hastinator coming. So I, I, uh, I quickly backtracked out of that one and uh, left it for him. So everyone calls, obviously, Hasty now calls him Nader because of the Hastinator. And, um, and uh, I just stuck to home dog. <laughs> I owe him from getting me drunk that yeah. time. <laughs> I owe him through a, a few times. <laughs> All right, Josh, mate, it's uh, great having you in the beach shack. And, uh, mate, we'll catch up soon for a beer. Thank you very much. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Hello, Whippet. Welcome to the Beach Shack. Thank you for having me. Mate, I know you've done a lot of uh, surf trips over the years. One that stands out is uh, when you went over to Bali with Kerbox. I did. I think I was maybe 17 or 18 at the time, so I was pretty young, just a grommet. And um, I'd known Box. Box was my surf coach growing up and um, as like a 10, 12-year-old sort of thing. And so he's taken me on you know, a hundred trips up and down the coast and, you know, looked after me all over the place. So when we said we we're going to Bali, uh, mum and dad were kind of like, oh, if Box is going, he'll look after you. Even though they know he's pretty loose, he's always been pretty good with me. And, um, yeah, we we were in Bali and <laughs> I don't know what it was that bit him, but he sort of got bit on the nuts by like a bug of some sort. And I remember they, <laughs> they swelled up and um, we were going out for dinner. Well, he's got no nuts, so it's a pretty look, good thing. Yeah, they look normal size. And, um, yeah, we went out for dinner, and I remember he was like, God, mate, there's something wrong with my nuts here. Like, they're itchy, and they're kind of stinging. And I was like, oh, we'll go home. We'll go home. We'll go home after dinner anyway, and we're going to go back out. And so, anyway, we went home, and he looked at his nuts, and there's like a rash on them because, I don't know, like over there you can get these little mites in the cane, and they, and they bite. I've had them on my leg, and you get this horrific rash. And anyway, I said, oh, mate, Sweet, just put some ice on him. And I remember we're going home like two days later or a day later, and he's going, How do you go home from Bali with this rash on your nuts to your missus? Blah, blah. And I was like, No, nah, I'll back her up. I'll back you up here. This is like a genuine bug. And um, he ended up laying down and putting a pack of ice on his nuts. I went out and had a few beers somewhere with the boys, got home and found Box in the nude laying on the mattress on the floor um, and the ice had obviously melted so it looked like he'd weed the bed, just had this little plastic bag and so I remember like the old days you had those like wind up disposable cameras and that's all yeah, I had yeah. with me. I was like, this is perfect. So I flicked the light on and there's just, yeah, a puddle of ice that had melted and Box laying there in the nude with his legs open so I quickly take a photo. <laughs> I go home and I get them printed and about a month later and I remember one of the other boys got wind of the fact that there was a photo of it <laughs> and uh, and said, mate, I need a copy of that photo. He then, because I was still too young to be at the pub and that's how I got out of the next part. <laughs> he then got the photo, took it to our local pub down the Chloe Hotel 
blew it up like A4 size and stuck it all over the pub. <laughs> and Kerbox got a phone call uh, from one of the boys at the pub. He said, mate, something bad's happened down the pub. Eh? You better get down here straight away. He's like, what is it? And he goes, there's a photo of you laying. And he just knew it was my photo <laughs> straight away. So he rang me. He said, I'm going to kill you. I said, what are you talking about? It wasn't me. I'm not even allowed in the pub. And uh, yeah, he ended up going down and ripping them all down, having a good laugh. He probably stayed there for six schooners anyway and had a laugh. But I remember he was out for some vengeance on me on that one. And I had to had to lay low for a while. But I guess with box, that's one of the things. We've, we've played pranks on each other and you know spent so much time together over our lives that we can get away with a few jokes like that at each other's expense. And um, yeah, he's got me back a few times. Yeah, he's usually a good sport with the pranks, and yeah, he can give it as good as he gets. Yeah, he sure can. You got to be, you got to be wary. It's much better off being on the same side as Kerbox in a prank <laughs> rather than butting heads. <laughs> Great story, Whippet, and uh, thanks for coming to the beach shack. No worries. Remember, Box, always put pants on before you fall asleep. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Veronica and she is from Queensland and she said that uh, we've been getting a lot of storms up in Queensland. Have you been getting those in Sydney? Well, Veronica, we have uh, been getting a few big storms and uh, there was one just uh, yesterday that was absolutely uh, horrendous. It uh, did a lot of damage, especially on the northern beaches, a lot of trees down, a lot of branches and also... The Sail GP, uh, some of the boats were uh, not destroyed but uh, badly damaged and they had to cancel the uh, competition. Uh, so, yes, uh, we have been getting some big storms, so hopefully uh, they uh, subside now and we can get back to some good weather. Well, thanks, Veronica, for your letter, and I'll catch everybody again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.